Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast coming at you from central Austria. What a setting we have for this latest edition. I am sitting in a garden with uh, some beautiful alpine mountains just in the distance. It is a lovely day, the Monday uh, after the Austrian Grand Prix, a fantastic, dramatic, action-packed weekend. And we have many different things to discuss, from Johann Zarco's exit from KTM at the end of 2019, announced, well, on Monday morning after the race, to the whole saga surrounding Jack Miller, Jorge Lorenzo, Ducati, and Honda. And of course, we had a pretty good race on Sunday as well. Mark Marquez, that freight train, that juggernaut uh, that seemed unstoppable at Brno, was halted by a fantastic Andrea De Vizioso on Sunday. I am Neil Morrison, and with me today is Modomatters.com's David Emmett. Hello, David, and good morning. Hello, a good morning, and welcome to the garden. Have you caught your breath after that weekend? Because, well, from Thursday when we arrived in the panic, there was drama aplenty. Yeah, I mean, it's been mental. It's been completely insane. Um, yeah, I mean, you come to you, you you come to a race hoping for some interest and some excitement, but um, it would be nice if they could spread it over sort of you know five or six rounds rather than all cram it into four days because it's um, uh, and to an extent it's it, it's a shame because as you say the race was absolutely fantastic. It's just that. Um, uh, I haven't been able to even, even sit down and think about the race yet because there's been so much other stuff going on. Yeah, well, let's uh, start uh, with this morning's news. We're recording this on the Monday morning after the race in Austria. KTM has announced that it will part ways with Johann Zarco at the end of 2019. It's been a really troubled year for both the Frenchman and that side of the KTM garage. Um Official communication from the factory this morning let us know that it was a decision from Johann Zarco. He was the instigator in this. He has not been fired. He has asked KTM to terminate his contract. Um, David, what do you make of this? I mean, results have been pretty appalling. Um, it's been hard to find any positives from Zarco's side of the garage from really the first test at Valencia last November. It started off in a bad way and uh, Zarco's rarely been able to find any kind of positive aboard the RC16. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I sort of wonder if the whole affair wasn't um, sort of started off badly precisely because Laurent Fillon signed this contract with, uh, uh, with KTM back at the end of 2017. Um uh, I think either at um, uh, either at, Valencia, at the Valencia test or um, sometime at Sepang, the um, uh, at the Sepang test, the early he signed it very very early before the season even started, and um, there was some bad blood later on between Fillon and uh, and Zarco. Once Zarco found out that he'd been signed to KTM, especially once he also found out that he that uh, the, there was an interest in him taking the other Repsol Honda seat. Just to clarify, this was the start of two thousand and eighteen. Yes, we're still talking about two thousand and eighteen. Yeah, yeah, and there, there are actual rumours that he may have signed it at the end of two thousand and seventeen. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. It, it's he was signed so early. Um, uh, and I think Zarco felt like he was sort of, you know, frog marched into it um, without any real choice in the in the affair. And then he got on the back of a bike and found it's the absolute polar opposite to his style. His style is to be incredibly smooth and precise. And this bike needs to be um, pushed and bullied. And the 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 the, 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 the 
the harder you push the bike, the faster it goes. Um, and that's the absolute opposite of, of Zarco's riding style. We compare it with them, um, compare and contrast with Paulo Spargaro. Spargaro hated the Yamaha because every time he tried to push to go fast, he would go slower. Um, and the, now he absolutely loves the uh, KTM because it's the opposite. Uh, you push and um, uh, you put the harder you push the faster you go uh, so yeah it, it hasn't been good um, there were a whole bunch of incidents where things went badly and then f coming back from Bruno it seems like um, uh, yeah it's it seemed like something had changed and we thought he'd uh, you know maybe Sarko had changed his you know found found something but what he'd found was um Blessed release, I think. Yes. Now let's go through some of those incidents that you just mentioned there. I mean, um, I think as early as Argentina, um, Pitt Byer, motorsport director of, director of KTM, had said, Johan needs to start adapting himself. We can only do so much. Uh, he was then caught on camera in FP1 at Jerez saying the bike doesn't effing do this or yeah. it's effing something yeah, exactly. in that area which clearly did not uh, yeah uh, he he he, he uh, made quite clear that he did not think that either the chassis or the engine were uh, up to snuff yes uh, and well various other incidents i think the probably the nadir was Assen when he uh, he pulled out with supposed arm pump issues after uh, after a handful of laps and um, that really didn't work so well if you were listening to the Assen addiction of uh, the Paddock Pass podcast this year, we had uh, Adam Wheeler, who knows KTM very well, and he was saying that really that's just not acceptable in their eyes doing something like that. And uh, well, some incidents uh, more recently, because um, when we came back after our summer break on the Thursday at Brno, we asked Zarko how he spent his break, what he was doing. I mean, it was quite interesting to hear what he was saying. Um, and I guess considering what's happened uh, just over one week on, uh, we can look at those comments in a different way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He was talking about he'd spent his uh, summer break going on very long mountain hikes, sort of 14-hour walks in the uh, in the mountain. And he talked about, you know, going through going through highs and depths and uh, uh, sort of valleys and, valleys and hills of emotion, physically and emotionally. And um, we sort of thought, okay, he's found, he's realised that he's going to have to sort of you know, grit his teeth and, and, and bite through this whole thing. Um, but he had apparently taken it another way. He decided, you know, all he has to do is see out these last, uh, the, the second half of the season and then go off and do something else. And then, of course, there was the test on Monday. Yeah, he had a, a desperately disappointing German Grand Prix. And after that, he said that essentially he was pinning his hopes on Danny Pedrosa and the Spaniard's ability to develop a more rounded bike. Um, but And he was then hopeful that at the Brno test, there may be something that would help him find some kind of direction to feel comfortable on the bike. Um, but, uh, well, the Brno test clearly didn't really bring that. And uh, it was puzzling to see Zarco complete just over 30 laps, I think, at the test. I think he, it's reported that he left the circuit quite early. Yeah, I, I went, actually went, because you can, um, on the MotorGP.com website, there is the full analysis of all of the laps done by, um, uh, done by riders. And if you, it's got the timestamps of, well, not the timestamp, they have the duration for each lap, um, starting from the first lap and, um, 
you can actually see if you go through and add up all the times, including the breaks, the times that he's in uh, these times that he's in the garage. Uh, he was at the track for a little over three hours, which is uh, basically from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Um, and the test finished at six o'clock. So. Um, yeah, it felt like he was phoning it in. Yeah, he told us on Thursday that uh, he was able to quickly conclude and evaluate some of the parts that KTM had brought for him to test. But clearly now looking back, he realized very quickly that they didn't make any great difference yeah, to his I comfort aboard the bike. I, and I, he I thought he, uh, that, I, that maybe that was the final straw. Yeah, I think he evaluated them and concluding that they were a four-letter word. Um, and... Um, KTM is a three-letter word. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, th I, I think he decided, nope, no three difference. Three-letter acronym, mate. Oh, ooh, yeah, you're quite right. You are quite right. Um, uh, so, yeah, he decided it's just not happening, and he came to Austria, and it all sort of fell apart. Yes. Um, I mean, he was uh, upstaged by the rookie, Miguel Oliveira, who rode to a fantastic eighth place. Really impressive performance from the Portuguese rider. Zarco was 12th. I think it was his second best result. But uh, really, uh, yeah, considering where Oliveira finished, he couldn't take too many positives from his performance in Austria. Um, this is a brave decision. This is his decision. And considering that... MotoGP 2020 grid is full, um, he's not really with a lot of options. I mean, I guess in one respect you could commend him. It's reported that he's on around one and a half million euros per year. Uh, with KTM, I saw that reported in uh, Speedweek, the German, uh, uh, German uh, website. Also, yeah, so he's basically, he's given up a lot of money and he's also giving up a ride there's no guarantee that he'll be on yeah. a decent ride or a competitive ride next or year or any ride or any ride um, is this to be commended is it complete I mean, insanity uh, it's to be uh, walking away from failure is um, uh, is a good thing better than seeing it through however um, that is not the prevailing opinion in the <coughs> uh, amongst MotoGP team managers. MotoGP team managers want to expect you to never give up, which is why everyone has hashtag never give up tattooed on various parts of their bodies, um, uh, both riders and team managers. Um, so, journalists. Uh, sorry? And journalists. And, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that is really... Um, that gives him a really big black mark against him. Look at what happened to Jonas Volga. Uh, Jonas Volga walked away as well, and he's become not quite persona non grata, but people are really, really afraid of him because you never know when he's going to do the same to you. You know, so you let's say you're Repsol Honda or even um, LCR, and you uh, uh, and you sign um, you sign Joan Zarco. Who's to say he's not going to walk away at the end of the year or he's not going to give up halfway through the season? Yeah, and I think it, it's also shown just the almost like an unwillingness to adapt at his end. I yep. mean, it, you get the impression there's been very little effort for him to change his style. I think at Mugello, he said, okay, uh, after Le Mans and Paul Espargaro's fantastic performance there, I've concluded that I must change my style. I must change the way I break. But you didn't get the impression that it went any further than Mugello. Yeah, but, but you wonder because he's 29 years old and it becomes more difficult to adapt, you know, when you're 29. I mean, when you're, if you come in, you know, Fabio Quartararo comes in and he's 20 years old. Uh, Miguel Oliveira comes in and he's, what, 22, Three, 23? 22, 23, I think. yeah. yeah. Um, it's still, 
not as set in his ways as um, uh, uh, as you are at 29. And also, Joanne Zarco has a couple of world titles. Um, and so that brings with it a certain level of confidence, self-belief, like, oh, right, I know I can win titles. I know I can be fast. Um, but when it doesn't happen, then they start seeking excuses outside of themselves, perhaps. And that's, again, a reason not to try to adapt. Yeah, and if you're a factory boss or a team boss, you're looking at him and thinking, well, I mean, his style is probably only going to suit the Yamaha and the Suzuki. Yeah. I don't know, maybe Ducati, well, with its turning issues, maybe not. So, you know, those four factories that are almost almost ruled out. Yeah, I mean, you and have to it, look at him and think, you it, know... It, it's, it's difficult to find, it's difficult to imagine him finding a way back onto the MotoGP grids anytime soon. No, no, exactly. I mean, it's, I think his best bet might be um, uh, as a Yamaha test rider. He'd be a fantastic uh, test rider for Yamaha, but, you know, would Yamaha take a gamble? It's a relatively low-risk gamble if you're... Um, uh, if you are Yamaha, um, because it's you know it's only a test riding uh, riding role, um, but then again, will Zarco want to settle for being a test rider? He may have to sit out a year, and if he sits out a year, he'll be sort of thirty by the time he wants to come back, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, we had a brief conversation with uh, our colleague uh, Thomas Bojard, Paddock Pass podcast attendee on occasion um and he made the valid guest yeah honored guest exactly yeah he made the good point that uh, MotoGP currently has a young exciting french star uh, it doesn't really it's not absolutely necessary that zarco was on the grid because of fabio quattararo and his successes um and to be honest i feel just a bit uh, a bit sad really because uh, you know zarco in his first two years of MotoGP largely was fantastic to watch oh yeah he was sensational we were sitting there wondering when he's going to win his first when he's going to win his first race and uh, he never did and at this rate it looks like he never will yeah um, a real shame so Sarko is going to um, see out this year uh, eight remaining races and uh, will no doubt have a lot more reaction and explanation from both him and uh, from how KTM see it at uh, Silverstone. Yeah, question, what do KTM do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, uh, that's another question. Um, speaking to people close to the team, it seems like they were dumbfounded by this. Um, there are no real obvious answers. Um, I, well, the obvious answer for me would be to move Miguel Oliveira up from Tectois into the factory team. But then you've just shifted the problem. But then you've just shifted the problem because then you have Brad Binder plus one spare seat. A lot of the top names in Model 2 are already signed up for next year. Um, I can see maybe someone like Marcel Schroeter um, possibly being promoted because he's German-speaking. KTM had an interest to bring them to their factory Model 2 efforts in the past. Um, Dorna would like a German or German-speaking rider to be a permanent fixture in the full-time class. Um, and Schroeder's a, a pretty good rider, but he's not someone that strikes you as a, a future championship challenger, potentially. Maybe like Miguel Oliveira or Brad Binder do. Um, also then, how does that affect... KTM's relationship with Tectois, because as we know over the weekend, KTM have announced they're withdrawing from Moto2 in 2020. Yeah, and Tech 3 are going to go to Moto3, it looks like. Yeah, it looks like that. Um, then you've basically given that team another year where they have two rookies and they can't possibly challenge for really, really good results. 
um, it's a difficult one. It's it's a really difficult one. And, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, a more or, well, uh, an easier answer might be to get Bra- um, uh, Bradley Smith back. Uh, you know, he's sitting there as a an, an Aprilia test rider. He wants to ride. He knows the program. He knows everyone. Uh, they know what he can do on a um, uh, uh, on a KTM. Um, they know what they know how to sort of read his feedback uh in the end when they had to make a decision between paul and bradley it was close um it wasn't you know like oh well obviously we're going to get rid of bradley although after the there was certainly they certainly tried to to do that in the middle of this uh, of his first year uh, but his second year they were much more impressed with him because he was it was he was a lot faster so it might be a simpler solution just to get bradley in and see um and then give yourself that extra year. You've got an extra year of development. You let Paul go off and try and, and chase podiums. You give Bradley the testing work. You bring Miguel on up to speed. That gives um, Brad Binder a chance with an old teammate to uh, to get better. It seems like a really simple solution, and therefore it's probably wrong. And impossible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, well, really interesting times at uh, at KTM um, at their home Grand Prix. Lots of positives for them to take away uh, from last weekend with uh, Brad Binder winning the Moto2 race and um, Miguel Oliveira impressing, but uh, plenty of huge questions for factory bosses to ponder in the coming weeks. Now, that was not only the big story. In fact, far from it, because uh, on Thursday we heard confirmation that some of the crazy rumors doing the rounds linking Jorge Lorenzo away from Repsol Honda to Jack Miller's seat at Pramac Ducati. Well, there was some substance to that. And, well, a whole weekend of drama unfolded. We, we learned about some of the splits in divisions within the, the top level of Ducati management. Um, we obviously learned of Lorenzo's desire to get out of Honda at almost at any cost. And um, all of this while Jack Miller is enjoying his best season to date in MotoGP, fresh from a podium in Brno. And... Um, yeah, he was feeling pretty cut up about it. it unsurprisingly, I think on um, uh, I wasn't at his debrief on Saturday, but the people were at his debrief. Yeah, on Friday Saturday. it was. Oh, yeah. Was it Friday? Yeah, exactly. And he was close to uh, you know he had to take a moment to um, to compose himself um, because it does seem like he's being sort of uh, abandoned. They'd had the contract. Um, there was a contract on the table from Pramac. Um, with all of the details, you know, the financial and GP20 and all the rest of it. It'd been on the table for quite a while. Um, uh, there was some back and forth over over money, as far as we can tell. And then um, that was, it, it, it all seems to be just a uh, sort of signed and sealed. And then all of a sudden, we hear that uh, Jorge Lorenzo is talking to Gigi Delinia and um, uh, Ducati are refusing to sign off on um, Jack Miller's deal. Yeah, and uh, it was interesting to learn of uh, the position of certain members of Ducati's management. Davide Tordazzi on Thursday, for example, uh, told me that it's only a matter of numbers. Is this Ducati's view? No, this is Davide Tordazzi's view. (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, if you have any other questions about this, you need to talk to either Paolo Ciabatti, Claudio Domenicali, the CEO, or Gigi Delinia. So uh, I think we know from those three who was uh, pushing for Lorenzo's return, uh, Gigi Delini did confirm this when he was interviewed by uh, Sky Italia yesterday. Um, he tried the reason. He said, look, if the best riders are available, you have to evaluate that and assess the chance. Um, 
I think Gigi is playing or has played a very dangerous game here because, uh, well, not only does he upset alienating Jack Miller, but uh, how does Andrea De Vizioso feel? How do, does Danilo Petrucci feel whenever a guy that was uh, a bit of a, how would you call Lorenzo's presence? Troublesome for a, both of them? A disruptive factor. Yeah, slightly disruptive factor in uh, their long-term planning um, is being considered for a spectacular return. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are reports, or I mean, uh, certainly there are people in the paddock who will tell you that uh, Gigi Delinia and Andrea Davicioso haven't um, uh, haven't exchanged a pleasant word for the best part of a year. Um, there's been trouble between the two for a long time. Um, Gigi believes the bike is capable of winning a championship and the only thing that's holding him back is the fact that Andrea Dovichoso is not winning a championship. Dovichoso says the bike doesn't turn. Um, he has a point because everyone, everyone, everyone else on the bike says the bike won't turn. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult uh, it, it's a very difficult, complicated situation also because there were rumours that KTM were trying to lure Gigi away and Ducati, the only way to keep for Ducati to keep Gigi was to try and placate him by offering them, uh, offering to sign Lorenzo back, despite the fact that Claudio Domenicali um, despised the fact that they signed Jorge Lorenzo after, from his previous experience, sinking so much money into Valentino Rossi and then trying to do the same thing again with uh, with Lorenzo. It works better with Lorenzo because the bike was a lot better. Um, uh, and Lorenzo, I mean, Lorenzo looked like he could actually, it certainly won races, looked like he might be able to challenge for the championship if he'd have been allowed to stay on. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it was it was ego, really, that uh, caused him to, to move away. Yeah. Um, had Lorenzo not jumped to that decision to call Alberto Puz after the French Grand Prix and Domenicali's... Yeah, had, Cla yeah, had Cla Claudio Domenicali um, not made v vaguely disparaging comments about... I can't remember exactly what he says, but uh, he was saying, you know, yeah, well, he is a great... We know he's a great racer, but uh, but uh, he really needs to start getting results. Yeah. Um, had he just waited a couple more weeks, you know, he would have come to the conclusion after Mugello in Barcelona that, uh, hey this is probably the best available package to me to win a world championship on. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, ego and uh, pride certainly got in the way. Um, this doesn't look good on Lorenzo's part either. No, actually, absolutely. It looks like he's giving up as well. Um, it also, it doesn't help that he's supposed to be recovering from a um, from a back injury with two broken vertebrae and he's uh, showing you know he's putting pictures on his instagram of himself in swimming pools in the maldives um that is not a good look if you look at what Mer uh, what mark marquez was doing you know what was it for three four hours of uh physio, of physio every day after his shoulder operation i mean it, that was a much more it was a bigger operation but it, it showed his commitment to to coming back and coming back stronger so yeah it, it's not a good look on Lorenzo's part it, he looks like he's sort of basically give, giving up uh, it's not yeah no one is covering themselves in glory with this except perhaps Jack Miller who um, had the offer from KTM to take John Zarco's seat when they found out that he was leaving 
um, and said, "No, I want to stay with uh, I want to stay with Ducati because we're getting podiums, and and I know that I can do a lot more." Yeah, I spoke to well, we spoke to Miller yesterday, and he said that more or less the deal is now in place um, for twenty twenty to sign that contract extension. Um, I spoke to someone from the team, and they confirmed that as well. Uh, Paolo Campinotti, the team owner, flew in. To Austria yesterday, and uh, well, it seems as though that, that may have accelerated the uh, the process. Um, but yeah, Miller, I think, comes out of this looking pretty good. He handled himself very well, I thought, throughout the weekend. Yeah, considering the pressure he was, he, uh, considering the pressure he was under, um, he did exceptionally well. Yeah, and uh, well, also some news came out as well that um, Lorenzo had offered his services to Petronas Yamaha for 2021, yeah. offering to ride for nothing. Yeah, I, I um, actually uh, I was on pit lane duty for Dutch Eurosport this weekend, so I asked Wilco about this, and he said um, uh, Lorenzo is not on our list of priorities. Our priorities for 2021 are to keep Mur uh, Morbidelli and Quartararo. Obviously, that's not going to happen because um, Quattararo will go to the factory team if um, if and when Valentino Ros uh, Rossi retires. Um, but he certainly, the look in his eyes did not say, "Oh, I can't wait to get uh, uh, Jorge back in the team and put him back in there with um, uh, with Ramon." Uh, yeah, I I I'm not sure that would I'm not sure that would happen. Yamaha might be interested in it happening though. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to wait and see. And uh, I mean, for Lorenzo, you know, Honda has bowed to basically his, his every request. Yeah, they flew him to Japan. They flew him to Japan. Uh, any constant uh, request to change the, the fuel tank, his seat, uh, seating position. Um, they brought new aerodynamics to try and help him. They've put a shift in to get him comfortable on that bike yeah absolutely I mean there are there are boxes and boxes of plastic parts which they stick to the um, uh, which they stick to the, the tank and various other places to try and help him you know sort of hold his position um, on the bike but that's not how you ride the Honda and his results have been desperate I mean yeah. he's yet to score a top 10 finish um, going back to the Spanish Grand Prix he had obviously had a difficult start to the year um, but when that team got to Jerez Jorge's personal entourage or, you know, his helper, physio that comes to the track with him, they were saying, yeah, podium this weekend. And for him to finish outside the top tier there and really spelled, um, spelled out just how difficult it's been for him. But yeah, you kind of feel that his recovery from injury, that surely there must be some kind of lack of motivation there. And thinking about it, looking back to 2013 um, uh, and the huge injury he had um, there, I mean, he came back and he was, and he was, you know, when he fell off, broke his collarbone, um, flew to Barcelona on the Thursday night because that was when the, the race was on Saturday. Flew back on, uh, uh, I think, the early hours of Saturday morning, um, did warm up and raced, uh, finished fifth in incredible pain, one of the bravest and also stupidest things I think I've ever seen. Um, immensely courageous, immensely, you know, talented and fast, showed, showed what he was made of. But that, that, uh, that had a huge psychological knock on him. The next week we went to um, uh, Saxon Ring and he fell off there, broke his collarbone again, bent the, uh, bent the plate, went away, had to get another plate put on it. Um, but the end of the 2013 season, he went away and they sorted his collarbone out more, more permanently. And he took a long time to recover. He came to Sepang fat, 
um, for well, insofar as MotoGP riders can be fat, but he definitely uh, looked um, didn't look at all um, uh, at all for fit. wasn't in good shape. He needed that time to recover, and I have to wonder if something similar has happened over the uh, over the over this winter, where he did have those big injuries, and it sort of took it took it out of him mentally more than anything. Mm, yeah, and it must just be it must just be difficult to deal with that relentless. Uh, misfortune yeah. uh, where everything seems to be going wrong um, and also I think the the tribulations that he went through to get competitive with Ducati I mean there were some real dark moments in 2017 think back to the start of last year yeah. Argentina and Austin were just horrible yeah. um, and you know he then he faced the possibility of having to walk away from the sport no one offering him a deal and <clears throat> you just wonder Early on this year, when he realized that it was going to be a similar ordeal, he was going to have to go through similar hardships to get competitive aboard the Honda. Um, it was just, I mean, that's a, another big thing to deal with mentally. Yeah. And, uh, well, Lorenzo's, uh, to be honest, his head hasn't really seemed as though it's absolutely 100% in it. No, exactly. I think uh, Lorenzo is also a rider when he's when everything is right, he's absolutely unstoppable. And I I, I, I honestly believe he's one of the few riders who could, um, uh, on the right bike, um, beat Mark Marquez in the championship. But um, if things aren't right, then he he's a bit fussy. He doesn't like things. He gets upset. He it starts pouring his energy into things which are not going to make him any faster so um yeah it all goes uh, it all goes a little bit wrong yeah how is he going to come and reconcile himself with Alberto Puig and his Repsol Honda team when it's been made public that he's been essentially offering his services to other factories for nothing yeah i mean basically also because they we've all we i mean it seems almost certain he's going to leave at the end of uh, the end of, end of 2020 so you've got basically 18 months of people stuck together uh, in a, um, it, it's like it's like being married and knowing that you can't divorce until sort of you know two and a half years time or something. Waiting for the kids to leave school and leave home, go to university before you can get a divorce. It's just not. Uh, it's it's not a good situation. Maybe Lorenzo can turn it around. Maybe he will figure it out. I mean, we saw they did it at UK. Who knows? You can't you can't write him off. Yeah, you can't. He is one of those characters. He does have that insane level of talent that he, he can do these things we've seen him do these kind of things before but uh, yeah certainly a dark moment um, yeah. that he's going through uh, in terms of results and his career interesting stuff then so uh, Miller it seems will be staying with Pramac next year Lorenzo staying put with Honda and uh, well who goes to KTM to replace Johan Zarco that is anyone's guess at present now moving on to the race it was uh, I think a much needed shot in the arm for MotoGP because we had had a few uh Snoozers. Yeah, snoozers. Fairly <laughs> dull encounters, thinking of the Saxon ring. Yeah. Aston was great up until around five, six laps to go. Yeah. Um, Bruno, Bruno was tense great. for the first half of the season. Half uh, the race. Half the race. And then he, um, uh, yeah, and then it all sort of fell apart. So, yeah, it's it, it looked like Mark Marquez had the situation under control. Yeah. And uh, I think it was certain someone, I can't quite remember who it was, that predicted the race would be over by turn five. Yeah, what a bit. What idiot would predict something like that? I can't. Don't I can't a complete fool. Anyway, I wouldn't uh, certainly wouldn't Moto listen. Matters. Yeah, I wouldn't listen oh, to him. That, oh yeah, right. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't listen to a podcast with him on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you wouldn't trust the word that that gentleman has said. Exactly. Yes. 
No, we are recording in the garden, and it sounds as though someone is uh, out on a lawnmower next door. So uh, if you can put up with the, the background noise, well, uh, that would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a great race, David. Um, on Saturday, Marquez's podium advantage was four tenths of a second, yeah. which around the Red Bull ring is quite ludicrous. Yeah. Um, his advantage was kind of similar in a lot of pre-practice sessions. So how was David Sioso able to get so close? Uh, well, two things. First of all, his his podium or his his um, uh, his pole advantage was not realistic. It, it wasn't a realistic uh, um, uh, advantage. Um, the I mean, yeah, sure, he was four tenths, but he, he, you can't ride like that. He said himself, you can't ride like that because you slide in the front and rear, and you're going to use the tyres up in like in, in two or three laps. Um, so. His real advantage, when he went back and looked at the pace, it looked like he had maybe a tenth, tenth and a bit over um, uh, over Andrea Dovizioso. Um, but that was in perfect track conditions, uh, or it had been perfect track conditions on Friday. It was also really good on, on Saturday, although it got very hot and a bit greasy. Um, and the race, it rained overnight, rained really hard overnight. The track was actually wet for warm-up it was wet for the uh, moto for the moto e race which um turned into another i mean it was only five laps but they were an exciting five laps and eventful um by the time moto gp lined up on the grid um track was completely dry but there wasn't a great deal of grip there was a lot of there, there was much less grip than before uh track temperatures were much lower uh air temperature was 25 degrees instead of sort of what is it 31 or something on um, on um on Saturday, uh, everything shifted around on the tyres a little bit, and uh, Dovizioso got the use the chose the soft tyre, and that was absolutely the right tyre for him, and um, gave him just enough time a tyre at the end of the uh, of the race to put in some a sensational last couple of laps. Yeah, and Marquez, of course, had gone with the medium, and he said he felt pretty much from the first corner where he got it a bit sideways exit in turn one uh, that uh, he may have some issues. Um, Whereas on the medium during the, on, on the Friday and the Saturday, he was phenomenal. I mean, he was genuinely, uh, you know, he was he was doing sort of 23s, bang, 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 one after another. Yeah, um, and he said really by the time they got to the final five or six laps, he was a sitting duck. Uh, he had no rear grip and uh, there was a few times where he really tried to break Davizioso. He was sensationally good coming out of turn four, that long right that takes you into the, the infield of the circuit. He would always gain a little bit there, but Davizioso in the final sector was uh, was tremendous. And, yeah. and uh, also he was strong in that in that third sector you know it was the one place where that um, uh, he'd really suffered in previous years um and although he wasn't as good as marquez through that sector he could at least sort of keep him in view he wasn't he wasn't losing grounds to him yeah yeah uh, and, but, but those last two corners yeah outstanding yeah and uh i really think you could put that win up with uh maybe Mugello, silverstone Mategi in 17 were the very best of Davizioso in that late lunge uh, I liked his approach as well he said you know what we had enough of an advantage to third place that even if I did mess up my break and go completely wide I was yeah. still going to have second place so it was a bit of an all or nothing move but unlike Thailand last year where he tried something similar he just got it right and was able to cut it back and because Marquez had no rear grip essentially he couldn't quite power by yeah yeah exactly it was a fantastic it was a Marquez move um, 
Uh, Mark got marked, I think. Jack yes, said. We, yes, 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 exactly. But, but that was, um, I, I think that was the interesting thing about these two. When we come to look back at them in 10 or 15 years' time, um, these will be remembered as classic battles because uh, race after race, we are seeing the two of them battling each other. So they know each other more and more intimately every race. Um, uh, they understand each other every race. And so they're always looking for chinks in each other's arms. They're looking for what, what they can do. That, that includes things like expectations. You expect the... Um, uh, Mark thinks he has Dovi figured out. Dovi thinks he's got Mark figured out, and so they're always looking for a, for a way to, uh, to, to 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 gain an advantage. And this time it was uh, it was it was Dovi. Um, perhaps also because he's given up on um, given up on the championship. Now that might also help. Um, Nothing left, to, nothing left to lose, or not given up on the championship. He knows that the championship is, was, is really, really difficult. So, uh, you know, even if he goes in and he crashes, it's not going to make it, it's not going to change his chances in the championship all, all, uh, all that drastically. And he needed, he really needed to stop the, uh, the this, you know, march, march of victory, which, uh, um, which Mark Marquez seemed to be on. Yeah, and I, I must say I felt quite sorry for Dovizioso after the Zanks ring because so much of the talk there was about how he's never going to fight for the championship, he's never going to be able to beat Mark. Um, but when you look at his results, uh, top six everywhere in the first half of the season, I think bar Assen and the Saxon ring, he finished inside the top four at every race. And apart from Catalonia where he was taken out, um, had he not been taken out there, he would have been a good deal closer in the championship. Assen and the Saxon Ring have always been tough tracks for Ducati and for him. Um, and if you look at his points total, I mean, he's, uh, I think he's got something like 12, 13 points now, sorry, 12 or 13 points more now than he did 2017 when he was locked in the middle of a title fight. I mean, it's his best season to date in yeah, terms of points. I, I don't think you could, I even think if Lorenzo was in Ducati now, he wouldn't be anywhere near Marquez. The the, the problem is that um, uh, when Dovi has a bad day, yeah, I mean, like top four, top six, every race is uh, astonishing. Unfortunately, when Mark Marquez has a bad day, he's second. Uh, I don't think he's finished lower than second in any race so far this uh, no. so far this season, or in any race I think since Bruno last year. Yeah, there you go. That's the problem. So the only way you can, literally, the only way that you can beat Mark Marquez is by uh, winning more races than him and only ever finishing second. Um, it's, I mean, what Mark is doing is phenomenal against this level of uh, against this level of, uh, of opposition. Uh, to come back to that, you, I mean, this morning you put together all of the uh, the, the, the time differences of, of the various riders or the various factories, how much they had improved compared to last year at Austria and. Uh, it was uh, it was really quite impressive. I think uh, Honda and uh, uh, was it Honda and Ducati were five six seconds. Uh, Suzuki and Yamaha were 13, 14 seconds. KTM improved nineteen seconds. Uh, Aprilia only improved, improved three seconds, which is tells you the dire situation they are in. So the I think the field is getting tighter. The field is getting tougher. But there is only one man who is in there who is you know in top two week in week out and that's Mark Marcus and that's why he's leading the championship yeah in MotoGP's most unpredictable era yes there's, uh, there's much one, one predictable factor one constant yeah, yeah there. exactly yeah okay well it was a great race um, may not have really any 
serious bearing on the championship. I love Marquez's line. There was a, a little snide kick at Davizioso <laughs> after the race where he said, uh, you know what, uh, I learned a couple of years ago that if you win the championship or if you're the champion in Valencia, no one really talks about this race until the following year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> but because that was in the context of being of being, of being asked about whether it, uh, it stung that he still hadn't, this was the one track where he still hadn't won at. Uh, and his reply told you that yes, it did actually sting. Yeah. That this was the one track where he hadn't actually uh, actually won at. Yeah. But he's he's right. At the end, you know, there's going to be it's going to be Mark Marcus's name on the little plate which goes on the bloody grey big trophy. So um, um, yeah, it's we'll talk about it again next year when we come back. This is the the only track that Mark Marcus hasn't won at yet. So uh, we shall see. Okay. Right. So um, well. Plenty of other things to discuss, but we're on a bit of a, a limited, uh, limited schedule here. Uh, we have to depart for uh, airports and for Vienna this afternoon. Um, so we're going to move swiftly on to the winners and losers from this race weekend. And, uh, well, we'll start with you. We might call over the gardener in a little second and ask him <laughs> for his uh, thoughts as well. Um, but David, your, your big winner from the Red Bull Ring 2019. Um, the... Uh, the it's actually do you know what it's actually quite hard to to choose i think i am going to be controversial and say yamaha because um they were so much closer last year fabio quartararo and so much closer this year so sorry so much closer this year fabio quartararo read an absolutely fantastic race uh, once again showing the talent which he has um, he um, uh, he finished third. Uh, we had uh, Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi who finished behind them. Um, that's really, really. I mean, they they were much closer. They couldn't compete. But this is a track they can never compete at. There is no way a Yamaha is going to win it to win at Austria uh, until they magically find the thirty horsepower that they're down uh, behind down the back of a sofa somewhere in uh, in Japan. Um, it doesn't really matter as long as they can be close here. Um, they can, they could still uh, fight for a championship. It gives you real hope for them going to Silverstone, a track which is perfectly suited to the, to the nature of the Yamaha. New surface, more grip. Um, it should be, uh, it should be absolutely fascinating. So for me, I think even though the Yamahas were off the podium, uh, apart from Quattararo, uh, the factory bikes were off the podium. Um, it was a huge step forward and it showed how much better this bike is this year. Yeah, and Rossi said when he was asked, uh, what's the difference, what's been the difference since the Saxon Ring where you, you struggled so badly? He said, it looks like something started moving in Yamaha. Um, and I think that could be said of going back to the end of last season. It does seem that a lot of things have been going on behind the scenes. They've reorganized the race department, then shifted some of the responsibility away from Japan yeah, to there Europe. Are new, there, there are new Japan, there are new faces in the in the, uh, in the the garage, new Japanese engineers, and uh, it's making a big difference. Yeah, it's European. Uh, racing department has been given a bit more responsibility regarding electronics, and that was something that Rossi said. Uh, from FP1, we knew that... Uh, our electronics package was a lot better. Our acceleration was a lot better uh, than uh, certainly uh, last year also um, from the first part of the season. So uh, Yamaha certainly, yeah, there's something to build on there. I'm going to stick with that theme and go with uh, Fabio Quartararo because I thought his race yesterday was nothing short of astonishing. Yeah, sensational. I honestly, after he qualified in the front row on Saturday, which was a fine achievement, I was expecting Quartararo to, I wasn't expecting him to feature really in the top six at all because he was, everything that he said suggested he had very limited expectations from Sunday's race. He said, 
uh, this is our worst track of the season, it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, and he went with the soft tire and well in the past Yamaha hasn't really been able to manage rear tire life that well but Quartararo started brilliantly led the race for a couple of laps yeah. uh, whenever Marquez and Davizioso passed him uh, Rossi wasn't that far behind and he gradually took out tenth of a second per lap on Rossi until it got to around two and then he thought okay now it's time to manage the rear tire and uh, well for a guy who's 20 years old um, to outperform Rossi and Vinales to that extent and to be able to manage the rear tyre that's another thing that he said he struggled with so far this year in MotoGP um, I thought it was a, a real a really exceptional performance and yeah, yeah. Uh, more impressive in some respects than Barcelona and Aston where okay he was injured his physical condition was nowhere near as good as it is now but uh, those are tracks which suit the Yamaha they're Yamaha tracks yeah, yeah. Exactly. and uh, for him to do that there I thought that was a real uh, well, yeah, real confirmation that Quadraro is uh, something very special indeed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he rode a perfect race. Um, he uh, got a really good start, which he really needed. He was helped a little bit by um, uh, uh, Marquez and Dovi uh, taking each other out in the first, uh, I think, at turn three. Um, they both ran wide, which meant they, meant they dropped back. It, that allowed um, uh, Quadraro to get away a little bit. Jack Miller said that it was really difficult to to outbreak him. The way that he was breaking was uh, was really difficult. He was sort of like breaking early, but being uh, being able to decelerate much much better than um, uh, than than he could. So yeah, as you say, Rossi and Vinales. I mean, Vinales had a bit of a shocker um, uh, in terms of the start, but that's that happens sometimes. Um, but yeah, they couldn't catch him. They they just couldn't get close enough to actually do anything about it. And he uh, used the strengths of the Yamaha um, and to, to hide its weaknesses and, and ended up on the podium. So absolutely an outstanding ride. Chapeau to Fabio. Big loser. Uh, the big loser... Um, honestly, I think the big loser has to be Aprilia this weekend because they were nowhere... Um, I was listening to um, Andrea Iannone's bike come down the, the main straight and the, 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 the pit lane in Austria is really, really loud because it's trapped between two grandstands and uh, it was obviously firing on three cylinders or, or something. Yeah, fuel pump issue. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was just absolutely horrendous. Um, uh, yeah, the atmosphere in that, uh, in that whole uh, setup was not... Um, uh, it's not the greatest. No. Andrea and Ian, Ian O'Neill is a little bit uh, is a little bit more cheerful somehow. I think he's resigned himself to his uh, situation. But uh, yeah, it's just um, they really need to make a step forward, and they're not making it. Yeah, Alicia Spargaro from Mugello has. Uh, you can quickly see that man's belief in the project uh, steadily evaporating. Yeah, um, and he's become a little more um, resigned, I guess you could say. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, but also still deeply frustrated. You can tell, you know, he's spending more and more time cycling. He's, uh, he tweets more about cycling than motorbike racing. Um, uh, he is sort of sitting through his contract, but um, still pushing as hard as he can, getting everything he can out of the bike. But everything he can out of the bike is, you know, if he's lucky, it's a sniff of the top 10. Yeah, yeah. Tough times at Nawali for sure. Uh, I am going to go with uh, Lorenzo 
he wasn't present in Austria. Um, but uh, nothing that happened during the weekend made Lorenzo look good. And um, the whole situation regarding him offering his services, I mean, it's understandable if he really thinks that things are that bad at Honda, but um, the way he went about it um, and the implications that that has for the rest of his time with Honda are, are just desperate. And uh, you can't really see how this season is going to produce any kind of upturning results uh, when he comes back because um, it's like he's having to start again. He's only just recently resumed training. He was already at a pretty bad level of fitness as it was. Yeah. And well, we know the Honda is a very physical bike. Um, and there have been complaints about his fitness all the time. There, yeah, I, I, is, I, yeah, he hasn't exactly enamored himself to his team. Uh, certainly the, not the, to Honda management in certainly not recent the, week. The Instagram pictures of him um, getting out of the pool showed that, um, that there was a, a, a little, bit, little bit more to spare than you would normally expect. I mean, if you look at Alicia Spargaro, um, you know, he's, he's about sort of minus 10% body fat and... Um, Jorge Lorenzo certainly wasn't. Yeah, yeah. So um, I don't really expect to see uh, an upturn in Jorge's fortunes um, from Silverstone onwards this year. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a weekend that reflected, I think, well on uh, some of his recent actions. Then uh, no, no. The whole situation was a. Um, to be fair to Jorge, it wasn't entirely his own um, uh, his own fault, but um, uh, he certainly didn't look like uh, it didn't look like he was giving his all to succeed in Repsol Honda. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, David. Thank you for your company this morning. Um, this is it really from uh, the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. It's been a pretty eventful Austrian Grand Prix. I think you'll concur, dear listener. Um, and uh, well, we're off. Uh, you're off to Vienna for a couple of days of holiday. I am off to Vienna to, uh, for a couple of days to uh, admire the glories of the Austro Austro-Hungarian Empire. Fantastic. Well, I'm uh, returning to Barcelona for a little bit of R&R. Uh, &R. Much needed after a back-to-back uh, MotoGP uh, set of weekends and uh, we'll be coming back to you with uh, another edition of this beloved podcast uh, from Silverstone British Grand Prix you surface and uh, well lots of uh, lots of fun things to get excited about there no doubt um, yeah thank you very much for joining us a time to remind you that uh, we are on various social media channels facebook.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast you can follow us there you can follow us on Twitter at Paddock's Pass Pod. Uh, if you listen to us on Apple devices or Apple Podcasts uh, app, then uh, you should really leave us a review. Um, that helps other people find us. And uh, we also have a Patreon page, David. We do have a Patreon page, uh, Patreon, uh, uh, patreon.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. There is all sorts of exclusive uh, audio up there. Uh, I think we have um, uh, Jack Miller up at the moment. He's uh, debrief from Thursday talking about the Lorenzo situation. Uh, um, we also did a special Patreon-only uh, podcast on the Thursday nights talking about how we saw the situation uh, around uh, Lorenzo uh, more information about Lorenzo in there than there was in today's podcast so uh, that's the sort of thing we hope to be able to bring you um, Steve English was talking about putting together a little show of um, Joanne Zarco's initial uh, initial responses at the Jerez and Valencia tests when he first got on the um, uh, when he first got on the KTM to give you an idea of how, just how difficult that was from the start so we hope to have something uh, something of that up on the Patreon page later this week so 
take a look. Yeah, take a look and, uh, well, help us out. As little as $3 a month, you can contribute to Panic Pass Podcast and its ongoing efforts to bring you entertainment and insight from the world of MotoGP and World Superbike. Well, thanks very much for your company. We're away to help our gardener with uh, the mowing <laughs> of the lawn and uh, we'll speak to you soon.